0: Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And uh, this week, more questions. I did this feature earlier, asking you guys to send in questions at hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. And a lot of you responded, and I did it once before, and it was very well received, so I'm going to do it again this week because A, you liked it, and B, the guest I had scheduled had to reschedule, so i got to come up with something last minute, and that's what this is. But again, fortunately, I have a a lot of very good questions to answer, and hopefully this will be a very entertaining and informative episode. So uh, let's start out. Actually, I'm going to answer questions from only two people, Because both of these gentlemen sent in multiple questions, and uh, they had a lot of really good ones. So I thought, uh, what the heck, a good question is a good question. So I'm going to answer a question, actually, like uh, four or five, from a gentleman named Richard Below. So Richard, thank you again for reaching out at HollywoodLevine at com, and these are his questions. The first one is, what do you think is the balance between director and writer? Often you hear that movie is going to be directed by Ken Levine, so you know it will be great. <laughs> right. Um, maybe, maybe Martin Scorsese, not Ken Levine. But what about the writing? Okay, here's the thing. It is completely the opposite in television as opposed to movies. In movies... The director is the king. The director runs the show. Movies are the director's vision. And the writers are just there to serve the director. And the director at any time can fire you and bring in other writers. Sometimes the directors will let you go on the set and watch the movie. Other times... The writer is literally banned from going on to the set. Remember William Goldman, who is one of our premier screenwriters, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Princess Bride, Marathon Man. But anyway, uh, he was talking about how you're working with a director and you do draft after draft, he says, and eventually the phone stops ringing. And when the phone stops ringing... It means they have moved on. I also remember there was a a Writers Guild meeting, a full membership meeting before one of our many strikes, and Larry Gelbart got up to speak, and he introduced himself and said, every writer in this room has rewritten every other writer in this room, and that seems to be the case when you are talking about movies now in television it's the opposite because the showrunner is a writer so if you are a director on a tv series you are serving the showrunner and the showrunner has final cut of the episode the showrunner can come down to the stage and completely reblock everything you did. The writer can just walk out onto the set and go, no, no, you sit here, you do this, you do that. Again, in a movie studio, a writer is just lucky to be allowed to go near the craft services table. But in television, it is a writer's medium, and it's one of the reasons why uh, a lot of writers prefer television because they have a certain amount of control. And in the future world, yeah, you know, it's great if you get in with uh, Steven Spielberg, you know, if you're Tony Kushner and you're this wonderful writer that Spielberg anoints as a genius – then, yeah, it's a wonderful collaborative situation. But most of the time, that is not the case. Next question, who determines what order TV episodes are shown? I assume, Richard, that you mean broadcast television, and the answer to that is the networks. And it is one of the reasons why networks for so many years have been resistant to uh, serial-type, series because they like the standalones, they like the ability, the flexibility to maneuver episodes around and move this one back for sweeps and move this one up or move this one on up against the Academy Awards, although these days probably your worst show is going to beat the Academy Awards, but still uh, the network's determine that. Is the mid-season partial dumping ground for shows that networks have less confidence in? Actually, no. Here, too, it is the opposite, that networks will take a show that they really believe in when they're looking at all of the pilots in the spring, and they'll decide to hold it back to mid-season. Now, the reason for this is, and again, it's a changing landscape uh, in television, but for many years, all of the networks premiered their big fall schedule at the same time. So there was so much new product that was all being unleashed upon the public at the same time. During the mid-season, You come on in January, you come on maybe in February, and then, um, yeah, there's fewer shows, fewer new shows that you have to compete with, and uh, I can't think of any at the moment, but there are probably hundreds of examples of shows that started out mid-season and then became long-running hits jeffersons okay i remember the jeffersons started out as a mid-season show so uh yeah if your show goes on in january that's fine except again dealing with the networks here if you go on in the fall and you make your 13 episodes and the show is doing pretty well you get a back nine But if you go on in January, even if your show does great, you're just going to make the 13 or 12 or 8 or whatever the order was. You're not going to get to do any additional episodes. So that's really the one downside of premiering during uh, mid-season. Now, March. If a show comes on in March or April, then chances are, yeah. That is a dumping ground. That is the network just playing these shows just to try to make back some of the money. But if a show goes on in March or April, chances are it is dead. Now, there have been examples of shows. I can't think of any, but there have been examples of shows that started out in March and really caught on. And suddenly were hits, but that was to the surprise of a network. I mean, look at, uh, it just premiered a few weeks ago, uh, Night Court. Well, Night Court is doing okay for NBC, getting a one share, which <laughs> today, oh my God, you know, they're over the moon that it's getting a one share. Uh, successful dramas are getting a shares so (laughs) but um, that show sat on the shelf for a year that's how much confidence NBC had in that show it was supposed to be on I think uh, last fall and they just kept pushing it back so the geniuses at NBC were now taking credit for uh, Night Court this is a show that they had put on the shelf For over a year. Okay, Richard also asks, how long do you think a show needs to find its voice and path? Well, it's hard to put a number on that, and there are some shows that find their way right from the get-go, but I would say between a half a year and a full season. You know, you need a few shows just to see what works, just to see what the actors' abilities, what their limitations are, whether or not uh, a character surfaces that becomes uh, a breakout character, uh, kind of like the Fawns. That's the famous example of the Fawns in Happy Days or the Alex Keaton, Michael J. Fox character in Family Ties, uh, you need to have that flexibility to see where the show goes. And usually they can make um, some corrections and maybe improve things or just kind of find a sweet spot. But a lot of times if a show starts out and it's bad or it's really in trouble – then it's pretty much dead. And the only example I can think of of a show that started out that was pretty horrible where they made a mid-course correction and it turned into a terrific show was Parks and Recreation. Uh, I think the changes they made in that show um, really, really, turn things around but I can't think of many other examples and when you have a bad show (laughs) every week you're trying something new every week let's try this direction well let's uh, cut out the home life well let's bring in this actor well let's change the opening theme well it's like every week you're tinkering with it but you're moving the deck chairs around the titanic What can prevent a show from being fixed? This is very simple. The answer, casting. Everything else can be fixed. You know, even a parks and recreation situation. But if you have the wrong people, you are dead. And it is why... I hate the casting process. People say, it must be fun. All these actors come in and eh, you're meeting them and they're reading your script and isn't that fun? No, it's not. Yes, it's fun to meet the actors, but uh, you just know you're under such pressure because if you make the wrong decision and it's so subjective, then your show is sunk. So... That would be my answer to that. It is casting. And, you know, there's the added problems with the network. I mean, I don't know how they work it at Netflix or Hulu, but networks today are very hands-on when it comes to casting. And oftentimes networks will make the final decision. We had this happen on the last pilot we did where the network forced us to take a particular actor to star in it. He was wrong. We knew he was wrong. We tried to write to fix it. It, it, it was just wrong, and the show never got on. But we knew from day one that we were dead in the water. Now some questions from John Maybe. And for those who don't know, John Maybe is a terrific young playwright. I mean, this is a guy who in the next few years you're going to be reading about. This is a guy who's going to get stuff on Broadway, is going to be nominated for Tony Awards and Pulitzers and things like that. This guy is really that good. Anyway... He asks some questions. One of his questions is, thinking of all the characters that you've written, TV, film, plays, what's a moment where you've been surprised by your own character, something you wrote that you didn't see coming? Well, I didn't actually write the first draft of this script. Ken Esten did. This was the first season of Cheers, and it was a reaction from the audience that completely shocked us. It is the episode that's called The Coach's Daughter from the first season. And that's the episode where uh, the coach's daughter, who is not that gorgeous, is going to marry a guy who is just despicable. Uh, Today, you would call him A Republican congressman. But back then, he was just a despicable human being. And there's a scene between the coach and his daughter where he confronts her. Why are you marrying this guy? And she says she wants to be married. She wants to have kids. And she says, you know, look at me you know, basically saying, I'm not that attractive. And Nick Colasano, the coach, then says something to the effect that, I never realized how much you looked like your mother. The audience erupted. This was a huge laugh. And it was an unexpected laugh, and one that we felt completely destroyed the emotion of the scene. And so when it aired, we took out the laughter. We took it out completely so that it becomes, it's supposed to be, uh, a very bittersweet, tender moment. And, uh, And I've always contended that That is one of the things that separates Cheers from other shows because I know there's like a a lot of other comedies that are always going, how come they were nominated and we were never nominated? And I, I think that was one of the reasons. I mean, we upheld the integrity of the scene and there's a lot of other show writers who, showrunners rather, who would just say, how can you take out the biggest laugh of an episode? I mean, that got a huge laugh. You got to keep it. No, no, you don't. Another question from John Maybe Your career includes so much including radio broadcaster, writer, and cartoonist. What is something new that you haven't pursued yet but would like to try. I, I have always wanted to play an instrument. It's so the one thing, for all the different pursuits, uh, I've never been able to do anything in music. And I love music. And there was a point uh, a number of years ago where I started taking piano lessons. And wouldn't you know... About a month into it, uh, my series, Almost Perfect, got picked up. And so now I'm busy 60 hours a week and had no opportunity to pursue it. Uh, So I don't play an instrument. And and I'm I'm kind of thinking about it now, maybe. Um, You know, I think the people in my neighborhood... Uh, will probably take out a petition telling me to stop. But yeah, I would like to play an instrument, probably the piano. What is the last thing you saw on stage or screen that really impressed you? There was a play, this was right before COVID, was a play on Broadway called Waverly Gallery. And in the cast was Elaine May who at the time was probably in her mid to late 80s, 86, 87, something like that. And she was remarkable. And you don't necessarily think of Elaine May as a great actress. Very, very funny. She's incredibly funny and she's she's brilliant. But you don't necessarily think of her as a nuanced actress. And she gave such an amazing performance. Uh, She was a character who was starting to get dementia. And so at times, she would be repeating herself. And she managed somehow, whenever she repeated herself, to do it in just a little different way so that it just wasn't Repetitious, just a, a remarkable performance. She won the Tony that year, but that certainly uh, would count as the last great thing I saw. I mean, I've seen some great musicals. Uh, last time I was back in New York, I saw Company, which I really liked. Uh, I saw The Music Man with uh, Hugh Jackman. And as somebody said, that's not really a show. That was more of a party that he was throwing He was great. I mean, he's just so charming. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I never loved the music man. It's (laughs) just, you know. It's like I don't understand why people in the Midwest aren't outraged by this show. I mean, think about it. This is a show. It's set in Gary, Indiana. And the people are so gullible that they buy into buying these band outfits. And the whole premise of the play is, look, we can con these stupid people. Now, you think they would be outraged over that. But I think they would be outraged over MAGA too. So I, I guess not. Okay, John also says, what performers have you always wanted to work with but never had the chance? I would say the Golden Girls. I would have loved to have written an episode of the Golden Girls. Um, those actresses were just so unbelievably great. I have been incredibly fortunate in my career to have worked with some amazing actors so this was kind of a tough question for me. You think it would be an easy question, but no, because I've worked with David Hyde Pierce and Tom Hanks and John Kane. I don't want to be a name dropper, but uh, you know Ted Danson, Shelley Long, Nancy Trapp. I've worked with a lot of great people. So I would have always wanted to work uh, on the Golden Girls and also, although it was way before my time, but Phil Silver's. I would have loved to have written an episode of Sergeant Bilko. It was just such a great character. I mean, another actor who I love to watch is Jackie Gleason. But from all reports, he was an absolutely despicable human being. So, yeah, no on on Jackie Gleason. And finally... Here's a question I don't think I can really answer, but I'll take a stab at it, okay? So John asks, what's the secret of comedy? And he says, I'm joking, of course, but I'd love to know uh, what makes you laugh. You know, there have been articles and books. Uh, I know a former colleague of mine, Dan O'Shannon, wrote a great book really analyzing comedy. I mean, really going through and all the various forms of comedy and all of the factors that play into it. Um, And uh, yeah, it's very fast. I don't know if it's true. I don't know if any of it's true. Uh, But I guess for me, if I had to summarize it, I would say it's the element of surprise. It's one of the reasons why we have the rule of three where it's apples, oranges, gorillas, where the first two set up a, a sequence, and so there is a certain expectation, that in this case it's gonna be a fruit, and it's it's something else. And most of the time comedy has an element of surprise and absurdity. It's not at all where you thought the line, the train of thought, whatever, was going to go, but it does. And I find, in terms of writing comedy, that a writer's best friend is Frustration. If you have a character and you have established him in a certain way and you've given him a certain comfort zone and you take him out of that comfort zone and you close off all of the, uh, I would say, obvious solutions, what does that character do? Oftentimes people will somewhat act out of character, Uh, and that's kind of where you get your comedy. So that's sort of the short answer to that. And that will do it for questions this week. Again, if you have a question, uh, if you guys enjoy this particular feature, uh, I will continue to do it on a semi-regular basis. HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com is my email address, Again, that's HollywoodLevine at com. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister, Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Bruce, and Jason Miller. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram, see some of my cartoons, Hollywood and Levine. Uh, I haven't uh, basically pimped out for a um, five-star review in quite a long time. So let me be a, a shameless... Uh, shill and ask for a five-star review. And that'll do it for this week. Thanks for listening. Hollywood and the fine